We're continuing this long series of the Book of Romans, and we've come to that point in the book where now we're, we're talking about practice. Doctrine, chapters 1 through 11, now practice, chapters 12 through 16. And as we've said in the doctrine section is that, and it's very important that we understand this, that doctrine is not just information, uh, but it is transformation. Doctrine is what is true, but that truth comes into the Christian, enters the Christian, and rearranges their mental and spiritual furniture so that they become truly new creations. And so it's not by our own power or our strength that we are going to live out Romans 12 through 16. It's through the Holy Spirit within us, it's through a union with Christ, um, that we are able to let, live out Romans 12 through 16. That being said, if you would be salt and light in the world, if you would be a light that shines, if you would be salt that does not lose its saltiness, so that when the world sees you, they glorify God, then we must bring our hearts and minds and strength to live out the practice that the Bible presents to us. So, today, Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Read with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that, according, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. As, as Christians mature and develop, they're going to have to kill within them the flesh, the immature parts of the flesh, now, I was, a, I was brought up in a Christian household, and I believe I was a Christian, a believer, with the Holy Spirit at a very young age. However, it wasn't until I started reading the Bible that I really started to mature in Christ in my late teens, early 20s. That's when I really started to mature, because the transform, the renewal of the mind, like we talked about last week, requires that your mind is introduced to information that does transform you. And that's what scripture does. Anyone who practices a diligent and consistent reading of the Bible, I trust, will become transformed by that reading. By that reading. The Bible is self-authenticating and it is transformative because it contains God's truth. So maybe some of you have experienced that as well. And so one of my great burdens... In, in ministry is to just get people to read and understand 
the scripture. And the transformation will partly take care of itself. So, however, in my journey of reading the Bible, I, I went through different stages of maturity. And when I started reading, I was, I was getting concepts down, but I was still very immature in the faith. And I remember knowing that humility was a good thing, and I really wanted to grow in my humility. But I still had that fleshly sense of pride within me. And I, I, remember, I remember praying to God in my dorm room that I would be humble. And I would be so humble that others might see how humble I am. Which is the most ludicrous kind of prayer. Self-contradictory kind of prayer one could ever pray. But for a, for a 20-year-old man, this seemed very logical. I want to be humble and I want other people to see that I'm humble. So funny. This is that that touches on the sin of self-importance that the flesh has in all of us. We all have a streak of self-importance in us, and um, the renewing of the mind is going to require us to die to that sense of self-importance. So. What, it, what Paul is getting at here in this passage is the perspective of the renewed mind in relation to other people. So we are required to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That renewing now needs to take place within a community of people called the church, called the called out ones, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. And so... I'd like to treat this in three headings. Number one, how we should think about ourselves individually. Number two, how we should think about ourselves collectively. And number three, how we can work out our renewed mind in the body. So first, how should we think about ourselves individually? The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the way. He says, I, I'm sorry, that, that's verse one. He says, for by the grace of God given to me. I said to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Paul is speaking by the grace of God given to him, by the way. Which means the very weight of his exhortation is behind the grace that, the God, that God has given to him. God struck him down on the Damascus road, and he told Ananias that Paul was a chosen vessel of mine. That's in Acts recounting the Acts of the Apostles. And Paul also talks about that striking down on the Damascus Road, that he received grace to be an apostle. And so Paul, is, in his characteristically humble way, is holding out apostolic authority and saying, by the grace given to me, I say it to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. So this is not a suggestion. This is an apostolic command to think first of all to think of himself more highly than he ought so to think means the way that you view something it's not just the process of thinking but the perspective you take on a thing the angle at which you view something so there's the broken mind and there's the renewed mind and each will take a different perspective 
on many things in life, including themselves. How does the broken mind conceptualize himself? The broken mind thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think. And so this is that fleshly sense of self-importance that we all have. And there is, an, there is a temptation to, because of natural endowments, to think of myself with superiority, or, and then use those natural endowments towards a self-serving ambition. And that does not suddenly disappear when you become a Christian. It does not automatically and suddenly vaporize when you have the Holy Spirit. What you have is the Holy Spirit, and the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit wars against the flesh, and these two are opposed to one another to keep you from doing what you ought to be doing. So, the new and the immature Christian, hear me now, the new and the immature Christian is going to transfer his sense of self-importance onto the Christian life. Now, we need to have patience with these kinds of people. We don't want to demoralize them, but this is how it worked out for me, and this is how I've seen it work out for other people, where they become a Christian, and now their immaturity is not done away with. It's just transposed onto the Christian life. And usually that takes the form of the person believing that they're indispensable to God's economy or that they're God's prophet, or God's man, or that, that truth lies with them. And so um, it can take many different forms, but usually it can be summarized in pride. So this is, by the way, this is a great temptation for teachers in the church. People like me who stand in the pulpit telling other people how to think and what to do. Teachers can, are most susceptible to being pride, proudful or prideful and having a sense of self-importance and thinking that the kingdom of God depends on them. Now, being slightly older, I realize, <clears throat> I realize that God does not need me up here. He does not need me to preach and teach. He could raise up a stone to do what I do. And he doesn't need you to worship him. If we stopped worshiping him, the very rocks would cry out, Jesus said. Now he desires that we worship him. And it is to your benefit that you are freed to worship God. And it is a privilege to stand up here and to proclaim God's word. But God does not need me. And he doesn't need any one teacher. The kingdom of God... Be participating in the kingdom of God is itself a privilege. It's a privilege. Nevertheless, he condescends to use us. Is that not a joy? That he condescends to use people who are unworthy, transforms them towards worthiness, and uses them in their unworthiness for the purposes of eternal things. So God works through people. But nevertheless, the broken mind thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think. The renewed mind, however, 
Their renewed mind thinks according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. The measure of faith God has assigned him. There is a massive debate about this. And the more and more I study Romans, that every week there is a passage that I am just... I I cannot... It's like trying to do something really hard. What's something... (laughs) It's trying to figure out these... it's, It's very... So this is one of those very debated passages in the Bible. So what is the measure of faith that God has assigned uh, to you? you know? and, and there are many different opinions, but I'm just going to get around and tell you the right opinion. Um, the measure of faith. Well, faith is receptive. right? We've talked about this before. Faith receives something. So the, remo- the renewed mind does not fall into the trap of somehow believing that his abilities have been generated from his own person. Right? Faith is receptive. That's how the renewed mind understands. And Paul says to think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That word assigned means distributed, divided out and apportioned to. So, the measure of faith, I think, refers to the different portions, the different apportionments of faith that God has given to each one of us. That is, the different expressions or manifestations of faith that God has given to each one of us. So, Paul is using faith here in a specialized way, I think. And... Essentially, he's using it to refer to spiritual gifts, the different apportionments of faith that God has distributed to the person. Why I think that is because he goes and he talks about spiritual gifts in connection with this command. And there are parallel thoughts in Paul. Um, I'm going to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 11. So faith can be distributed to different people in the sense that the faith is a different apportionment of a spiritual gift. I know that sounds like a strained interpretation, but I really think that's what Paul is saying, the different gifts God has assigned to you. In 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, Paul gives a kind of a parallel train of thought when he says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues and another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So, as I understand this passage, with most commentators, uh, I believe Paul is saying, talking about the allocation and distribution of spiritual gifts to the congregation. Now, 
if that's correct, and I think it is, then the renewed mind sees his gifts, Paul's point is, the renewed mind sees his gifts not as natural endowments, but as gifts. The renewed mind sees his gifts as gifts, something that God has given, something that has been measured out to them for the benefit and building up of other people in a select community called the church and in service of the kingdom. So, by way of application, do not overvalue and devalue certain giftings in the church and even certain personalities, which are gifts themselves in God's economy. I, I, I feel as if Many people have the, in the back of their mind the sort of idea, like, thank, thank you, Lord, that I'm a teacher, that you've given me the gift of teaching and not the gift of, you know, mercy. <laughs> thank you that I have, what's another one? Thank you that I have the gift of prophecy and not the gift of service. See, some gifts put you out there. They're, they're more obvious. They're more prevalent. Paul's very point, hear me, Paul's very point is that we have different gifts and neither one, none of them should be over or devalued based on their quietness or their loudness. Who put in more? The rich man who poured, the Pharisee who poured money into the coffer or the woman who put one might in? Who put more in? A woman. What does the Lord weigh? The outward appearance or the heart? Who will be first in the kingdom? The one who's first now? Or the one who might be considered last now? That's the point. Don't devalue certain gifts and do not overvalue the most prevalent gifts in God's. Don't overvalue me or any teacher because they're telling you the truth. That's a gift in God's economy. But it does not make the teacher more important than the student, for the teacher himself is a student. Now, whole, whole denominations, uh, I'm going to be broad here, but whole denominations have built themselves on thinking that they are more highly than others. Whole denominations are built on thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to because of gifts that they may or may not have. And they get into a habit of telling other people and other denominations that they should have the gifts that they have. The moment, though, we idolize that our gift, whether it is service, well, I'm actually out there doing something. You know, I'm serving the people. Or teaching, I'm proclaiming the truth. Or prophecy, I'm in tune with the Lord. The moment we do that, we are idolizing that particular gift in God's church and thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Please understand that God has apportioned Different gifts to different people in God's economy, okay? So that's how we should think of ourselves individually. 
How should we think of ourselves collectively? Well, Paul says in verses 4 through 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. What is far more important, in contradiction to modern society, what is far more important than our diversity is our unity in Christ. Right now we live in a cult of diversity, where diversity itself is seen as that which is valuable. But that's not true. Diversity itself is only valuable if and to the degree that it serves the unity of the body. Okay? There's nothing inherently valuable about diversity. What is valuable is the diversity serving the unity. We, in America, in the West, it's all about individuality. I talked about this, I've talked about this many times, I'm sure. Expressive individualism, where the key to the good life is finding your true self or your deep desire and getting that and expressing it out into the world so as to show your individuality to the world. And really, that's a, that's a way of being proud because it's, you're trying to show people that you are something or that you belong to this certain group that, that somehow gives you an identity. And every Disney movie is based on that. Every Disney movie is about the queen or the princess who, you know, was held down from truly expressing her desires and it's usually the patriarchy that's holding her down but then she finally gets a chance and fulfills her deepest longings and then the patriarchy repents because of this. That's expressive individualism and what Paul is saying is that that's not the most beautiful thing. The most beautiful thing is the unity of multiple people together and the diversity serves that purpose. So the church is a body and you all know this and bodies have different parts. So a hand needs a wrist to move and a wrist needs a forearm and a forearm needs a shoulder and a shoulder needs a torso and a torso needs a head on it and if a head is going to think it needs a brain and if a brain is going to express itself, it needs a mouth and eyes to see and ears to hear. And there are different parts to the body. And so the church is a body. And if the diversity is good, it is good for the whole body working together. The church is a body. So I'm walking and I need legs to walk. But to see where I'm going, I need eyes to see. There are many in the church who are gifted with spiritual vision and teaching and truth and seeing. And there are many in the church who are workhorses and they have legs to move and to go and to do and serve and evangelize. We all should be striving for spiritual vision and we all should be striving for service. Nevertheless, there are gifts in the church, and those gifts serve the, the unit, the collective unit. So Paul says, 
not all have the same function. So there are different parts of the body. We have, um, but not all have the same function. Verse 4. And the members do not all have the same function. I want to turn you to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. So we have different functions in the body of Christ. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, gives us more about this. And, and he, his point in this passage, and I'm about to read, is that not everyone has the same function. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is no. We have different functions in the body. So we should think of ourselves then as a collective unit, each with a specific gift or giftings that God has measured out to us, not that we have brought up by our own strength or developed or somehow self-generated. Each gift is necessary to the body, and possessing any one of those gifts is not an opportunity to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And our collective spiritual health health is dependent not on any one of those gifts, but on all of the gifts working together. Paul says in Ephesians 4.16, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. That's when we grow, when each part works properly. So that's how we should think of ourselves collectively. Collectively think of yourself as part of a body. We do not all have the same function, but we're necessary to the health of the whole. Third then, how can, the, how can we function in the body faithfully? So we know we've received from the Lord what we have. We know that what we have serves not ourselves, but the whole body collectively. So then how can we faithfully serve the Lord with what we have? And Paul gives a representative list list of gifts here. And he says in verse 6, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Different gifts according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. First, let's just go down this list. First, prophecy. Prophecy is communicating information that God has directly revealed to you. That is quite a gift. That's a, that's a unique gift, as these all are unique. But there are people whom God has allowed to hear directly 
from. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies. Don't despise prophecies, all right? In a church like ours, not, not charis, non-charismatic church, in a church like ours, there could be a tendency to despise prophecies. Don't, let us not despise prophecies. Let us understand that God does speak to people. Um, and he uses people to proclaim direct communications from God. Now, does that mean that everyone that says they've got a prophecy for you, you've got to listen to them? No, not necessarily. Paul goes on to say, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So, do not despise somebody if they have what they say is a word from the Lord. They may have a word from the Lord for you. Be open-minded, but don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. So test the prophecies. Go to the scripture and see if it's confirmed by the scripture. There are, I believe, the spiritual gifts of... There is, I believe, the spiritual gift of prophecy in today's church. Yes, I have seen it abused for many years, but that does not mean that some people have not had direct revelation from God to give to the church or even to a person. But it is a very weighty thing because the prophet is saying that the God of the universe has spoken to me and he has spoken to me to tell you something. That's a very weighty thing. But don't despise prophecies. Then service. Some people have the gift of service. And that word service, you know, in Ephesians 4, verse 12, Paul says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's that word service here. I think it's diakonos, which sounds a lot like deacon because service became an actual office in the church, the work of service. And so um, some of you have the gift of service. Don't think of that gift as lesser in God's economy. That is a great and unique and special and favored gift in God's economy to serve the brethren or the kingdom. Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you, who's the great one? Is it the person in the pulpit? Is it the one receiving direct communication from God? Who is the great one? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you be a disciple of Christ? Christ-likeness means disavowing yourself of your rights and serving at your expense. Remember, sacrifice is giving to the Lord or to other people what costs you something. And Paul said that's, that's the greatest. Would you be the greatest in the kingdom? Become a slave of your brother and sister. Leon Morris in his commentary on Romans says, many quite brilliant people seem constitutionally unable to perform lowly service well. 
There is a lot of lowly service to be done, and anyone who has a gift of doing it should rejoice at the wonder of divine grace. So service is one of those humble things because often it's done in the quiet, and it's not on the stage, and often it's done at your own expense, and it doesn't get you street credit. But service is very important and very blessed in God's economy and very, it seems, highly favored even. Nevertheless, the person that serves himself could become proud because he's the one that's actually out there serving, feeding the sick or feeding the hungry and, and binding up the wounded. I'm, I'm the one actually out there on the streets. And many liberal denominations have taken that mantle of service and said, see, I'm, I'm out there, but they've neglected other things other gifts in the church. And that gives, brings me to the next one, which is a gift of teaching, which is passing down truth and information. Yes, it is very important to serve. And yes, there are very liberal denominations out there serving their community. The one thing they lack in many of these liberal places is truth. The gift of teaching is passing on and preserving truth. Jude tells us, earnestly contend for the faith delivered to the saints. Truth is what Christianity is about. So, and, and again, I say, when I say truth, I don't mean some kind of spiritual truth that's not really as true as a tangible truth. Truth means reality. I'm, I'm here preaching this because I believe that Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of the creator of the universe. And that he taught apostles, and those apostles went down and wrote things down called epistles. And many people endeavored to write biographies of Jesus called gospels. And Jesus had a very high view of a collection of scripture called the Old Testament that gives us the Bible which expresses to us the reality that God wants us to know. So, the preservation of truth is very important in God's kingdom. If you neglect truth as a church, you'll, ju well, you'll just assume truth. Maybe... The first generation will believe the truth, but they'll just assume it and not teach it. And it'll be all about service and no teaching, no growing in the grace and knowledge of God. And then the next generation won't hear about that truth at all because it wasn't taught. And the third generation will simply reject anything that posits itself as truth. So teaching, passing down information is very important in the kingdom of God, as is service. The next gift, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Exhorting means urging you to live out what you know. Urging you to live out the truth of the gospel. And Paul has already done this in Romans 12. And he's going to continue doing it to appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 
The problem with the church today, if I could stand in prophetic posture, the problem in the church today is a lack of holiness. That is our problem. Be salt and light, and if the salt has lost its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything. It is a lack of holiness. We have a lot of people who know a lot of things. And we have a lot of people doing a lot of things. But that knowledge and that doing does not make up for a lack of holiness and devotion to the Lord, both in rejecting certain evils and living to certain truths. Holiness. You know what Peter says? Peter talks about hastening the day of the Lord by holiness, which is mind-boggling because he seems to be saying that the day of the Lord, that is the second coming of Christ, is somehow dependent upon the church being holy. That's one of the two things in Scripture that I see as contingent with regards to the second coming. Number one was when this gospel is preached to all the world, then the end will come. The second is Peter saying that we can hasten the day through our holy lives. Evangelism and holiness. Missions and holiness. The great commission and devotion to God. The next gift then is the one who contributes in generosity. Me, specifically, I have been gift. I, people have contributed to me in my life in so many ways. I remember Nitty and I, a few years ago, our car broke down and we didn't even know what to do. I mean, and we didn't even know how to spell money at that point. We, we, didn't ha- we are not in the place to buy a new car. Our car broke down. We didn't know what to do. But a couple who had, who had left the church and moved to South Carolina gave us their vehicle free of charge. I think it had like, what, 80,000 miles on it. That was really a gift, and it got us on our feet. And I really think that was a, a way to serve the body of Christ on their half, and it costs them because cars, if you don't know, are very expensive. But um, they did; they they served, they contributed with generosity, and it served us and allowed us to get into a good place. Um, John put a windshield on Nydia's car the other week, secretly. <laughs> that was a good service to us. So, the one who contributes with generosity. How much money, how much money goes to the work of the Lord? I'm not talking, don't, don't give more money to the church because I said this. But how much money goes to the work of the Lord, whether it be a church, a ministry, people, or a brother, or a sister in need? How much money, what percent goes to the Lord? 
The Lord loves a cheerful giver. All right, the last one is the one who leads with zeal. Zeal, diligence, giving your best effort. That's, that is what the leader is called to do. Leading with his best effort and diligence in the Lord. Paul tells Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Ministers or leaders in the church ought to be preoccupied with prayer. Learning the word and the ministry of the word. Preoccupied with it. Not as a hobby, but immersed in it. Paul says, immerse yourself in these things. So God in his wisdom, in his wisdom, has assigned different people to serve in different functions, with different functions in his economy. The prophet should not boast that he has received a word from the Lord. The teacher should not boast that he is on the stage. The servant should not boast that he's doing the tangible thing. And the generous, the, the one who contributes, should not boast that they're the one actually giving and supporting. Each has his own function, and none should be put over the other, and none should be despised. So, the renewed mind, as opposed to the broken mind, believes that he or she possesses nothing apart from God. Everything comes from the Lord, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The renewed, not, the, the renewed mind views himself not as somehow generating his own abilities, but seeing even the abilities he had before he was a Christian now as an opportunity to be in service of the kingdom of God. Prevalent gifts should not lead to pride, and the quiet gifts, perhaps perhaps are more adorned with God's favor than we know. But we should definitely not think lesser of them in the church. So, one exhortation a day is if you have a gift, and you do, having these gifts, Paul says, let us use them. Use them for, the, for God's kingdom, for agency in God's kingdom. That is... That's the last piece to spiritual growth. In the spiritual growth campaign, when I do it next year, that's the one thing I'll add to it. We talked about killing sin by the Holy Spirit and vivifying the Holy Spirit in our life. We talked about the Word of God. We talked about prayer. We talked about the fellowship. The last piece to spiritual progress is, oh, and then stewardship with what you have. The last piece is agency in God's kingdom, which often comes at a sacrifice. So, have different gifts, redirect those gifts back to God and his kingdom for his glory, not despising the others. All right, let's close in a word of prayer.